Now, we're in 2 Peter. We're going to pick it up in verse 13, but I'm going to read starting in verse 12. All the way to verse 17. Hold on to your yarmulkes. We're going to cover 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. You don't believe me, do you? Let's try it. Here we go. Verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption. That's where we left off last week. Again, Peter is talking about false teachers, <clears throat> false prophets. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice. Wow. I want to say something, but I'm not going to go there. A dumb donkey. Think about it. Speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. This is known as one of Peter's fluffy passages. Light and fluffy. Like Cool Whip. Actually, it's pretty heavy, isn't it? This whole passage is pretty heavy, but we're going to work our way on through it. Because God put it here, therefore he wants us to study it. And I believe we can still have fun even when studying heavy passages like this. The proper kind of fun. Not fleshly fun. Spiritual fun. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this passage. Even though it's been a pretty rough ride in some ways and continues to be. These are things we need to know. Things you want us to know. We ask you to bless this study today. Continue to plant your truth deep within our hearts and minds. And we pray that as we do, it would ha have the effect of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick it up in verse 13. And Peter's always already spoken a great deal about the punishment that awaits him. But he's not done yet and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. So he talks about them receiving the wages of unrighteousness. The wages of unrighteousness. Christ paid the price for our sins, did he not? But because of these men of their unrepentant, corrupt lifestyles, they will pay the price for their own sins. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So what every human being deserves for our own sin is death. And it's not speaking of physical death, because the Bible says it's appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. Every human being is going to die physically. We live in mortal bodies that deteriorate, and one day we will die. It's talking about spiritual death. The wages of sin 
Yes, it is physical death because Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the whole human race into a fallen state. And one of the byproducts of that is physical death. But the real issue is spiritual death because that's permanent. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet we're told that these false teachers will receive the wages of unrighteousness. The wages of righteousness, which is a righteousness placed upon us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the gift of God, eternal life. These men will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Death. And then he refers to them as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Now, most people when they want to engage in questionable practices and activities will usually wait until the night time to do their deeds. Jesus talked about that under cover of darkness. But these men primarily. They don't even bother to hide their sinful activities under cover of darkness. And as we've talked about more than once, you might think this is not that big of a deal. But sin is progressive. One sin leads to another. A smaller sin leads to a greater sin. Talk about gateway drugs. It's been a valid argument for years. People tend to ignore it. Talk about the fact that Marijuana is a gateway drug. It usually leads to heavier drug usage, stronger drugs. You need more and more to get the same effect, and ultimately it will kill you. We hear about beer Bible studies. I don't know if it's still going on. There was a church right here in Albuquerque having beer Bible studies, cocktails with Christ. It sounds silly, but it's really happening in churches all across America because they... Just like Rick Jardine said, you know, all they're interested in is having fun. We want our fun to be focused and centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. Their fun is of a whole different nature. Writing graphic, vulgar sex manuals like Mark Driscoll did several years ago. This is the new church. Those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Go, this is going back quite a few years. How many of you remember my Uncle Fred Cowan? He's a wonderful minister of the gospel for many years. Passed away about nine years ago, right after I had my heart attack, I believe. He was in his 80s. He went to Bible college with Pastor Chuck Smith. Was in the Foursquare Church for many years. And he would come and visit periodically, speak in our church, share with us. And he told my wife and I this amazing story of a church he visited where there were a couple different things. There was one guy, a pastor, and this is where you start to get off into these weird areas. He got up in front of his whole congregation and stripped naked. And he said it was a prophecy. And the prophecy was that God wanted his people to be naked before him. Don't worry. She goes, don't get any ideas, Gary. Believe me, I'm much too modest for that. The other one was that there was a church that decided, now you probably hear some people talk about, you know, 
uh, interpretive dance or sacred dance, dancing in the spirit and so forth. This church decided they were going to institute ballroom dancing in the church. And so they would have these regular... That sounds fairly innocuous, doesn't it? Sounds like no big deal. But the end result was people started having affairs. Apparently they were dancing with people they weren't married to. I guess the ballroom dancing got a little too up close and personal. Crazy things. And so on the one hand, we have to be careful. We don't want to be legalistic. But on the other hand, we do have to be guarded, be careful. These false teachers were those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Then Peter says they are spots and blemishes, spiloi and mamoi. In the Greek, my closest I can get to, to pronouncing it. It means like a stain on a clean shirt or a scratch on a tiny ring. Little blemishes, spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions. This is such a key phrase right here. Carousing in their own deceptions, which means they were the initiators of the deception. There are charlatans who deceive others for money, for other benefits, but the most effective deceivers, this is where it gets pretty scary, the most effective deceivers are the ones who are actually themselves deceived, self-deceived. You can be the consummate deceiver when you yourself are deceived. Of course, you have to allow that to happen. You have to embrace it. But carousing in their own deceptions. Notice this. While they feast with you. Now, the early Christians had held love feasts. We're going to have a miniature love feast after church with green chili stew and potato and leek soup. These were communal meals, including the taking of communion. That's why it's called a love feast, agape feast. They would share in the physical food and they would share in the spiritual food. But these false teachers were right there in the midst of the fellowship. Probably seducing women right and left. I mentioned recently my friend, pastor friend, who his youth pastor was grooming young women in the church to become part of his polygamy group. There is another movement within the church when I say the church, I'm speaking, you know, of the big tent for people to go back to the Old Testament practice of multiple wives. This young man, right under my friend's nose, and with his wife's approval and support, by the way, because she had first been groomed and deceived, to groom and prepare these other young women to become a part of his harem, if you will. Mainline, mainstream, solid, Bible teaching, Bible believing, church. This was happening. When the pastor found out, of course, the man was removed, as he should have been. Jude, we've, we've talked throughout the last several weeks, several months, about the parallels between Peter's chapter here, 2 Peter 2, and Jude in his one chapter book. And when we studied it, Sometime back, I love the book of Jude, small book, but so full of good things. Jude starts the book saying how, you know, I wanted to write and talk to you about, you know, salvation, our common salvation. Great subject. But he said, you know what, I had to rethink it. He had to change the focus of his letter. The book of Jude is a letter to the church. 
He said, I had to go back and change the focus because of all the false teaching that's going around. And so he spends his time in the letter addressing that. And so it's very, it's almost identical to what Peter talks about here in 2 Peter chapter 2. But in Jude 1.12, he says, these, and he's speaking again of the false teachers, are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery. And so again, as we've talked about before, one of the common threads with these various cult groups, cult leaders and so forth is this uh, sexual immorality. Uh, David Koresh, you know, the Branch Davidian, Moses David with the children of God way back in the 60s and 70s. And on and on it goes that uh, in so many of these cult groups, there is this eyes full of adultery, every man's wife seen as a potential conquest and that cannot cease from sin. This is another important point. Now, as believers, let's be honest, we do still struggle with sin in our lives. We have not been perfected yet. But like I said, struggle. It's an ongoing process. We will stumble in some area. We will go to God. We will confess. We will repent and be renewed into right relationship with Him. Thank God for His grace and His mercy. But someone who knowingly, willingly, freely engages in a lifestyle of sin and yet claims to be not only a believer but a teacher of other believers... This person is the brute beast Peter speaks of, we read earlier, verse 12. These like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. A reprobate. And we're told that they were about the business of enticing or seducing unstable souls. The Greek, deliazo. Deliatsao. It means to bait or to entice unstable souls. And again, this is not just a sexual thing because people can be baited and enticed with false doctrine, with false teaching, things that appeal to their flesh. And I will tell you, one of those is the whole faith movement, the faith teaching. Because everybody, especially in America, everybody wants to be rich. So if you're presented with a gospel that tells you all you have to do is name it and claim it, all you have to do is demand that God prosper you because that's your inheritance as one of the king's kids, that's being baited and enticed. If you just send me, whatever you send me, you're going to get it back a hundredfold. Sky's the limit. I'm your spiritual slot machine it is a slot machine because more, more times than not you lose they're going to send me 10 bucks God's going to give you 100 send me 100 God's going to give you 1000 how many times does that really work it works every time for the guy who's preaching it because you're going to send him your money I've seen a lot of lives devastated by these kinds of teaching the health and wealth gospel you should never be sick if you're in sick, you're in sin, brother. You don't have enough faith. No, you're sick because you live on planet Earth and there's germs everywhere. There's bacteria. There's disease. 
We live in a world cursed by sin. We live in bodies cursed by sin. And the best people you'll ever want to meet get sick. In fact, some of the best people you'll ever want to meet are the ones who got sick and were able to endure through it with God's help. Johnny Erickson, paraplegic from a diving accident, has had a ministry, a worldwide ministry. I guarantee you she'd have never had that ministry. And yet there were people in the faith movement who criticized her and said she could have been healed if she'd had enough faith. Catherine Marshall, sadly most people don't remember her anymore. She was the wife of Peter Marshall, the Scottish man who was the chaplain for the U.S. Senate back around the World War II era. He died of a heart attack at a young age. Catherine Marshall became very ill and spent about three years in bed and wrote some of the most fantastic Christian books you'll ever want to read. The ministry that she had because of her illness. I could go on and on with examples. Corey Ten Boom in a Nazi prison camp. Oh, I guess she didn't have enough faith to avoid that, huh? And she even talks in her writings about the, the conditions, the fleas and everything that they had to live with. It was just, you can imagine, we're talking Nazi death camp here, the horrors that she endured, but again, her entire ministry was birthed out of that experience. And yet we have millions, literally millions of people worldwide who are engulfed in this false doctrine of health and wealth. And it's viewed as mainstream. In fact, oftentimes, if you talk like I'm talking, I'm the bad guy here because I'm identifying it. Instead of just going with it, instead of just embracing it, and this is just one of many examples. This is exactly what Peter is talking about. I've seen so many lives destroyed by these teachings. Because what happens when people finally find out that it doesn't work, that it's a lie, that it's not really true, they don't just go find a nice Calvary Chapel somewhere or another church where they're teaching the Bible. They usually just stop going to church altogether. They hang it up because they've been burned so bad, they've been hurt so bad, that they don't want to go to church anymore. And that's the devil's goal. Divide and conquer. He wants to isolate us from one another. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. Enticing unstable souls. Unstable souls are those that are not firmly rooted and grounded in their faith. You know the number one target for cult groups like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses is weak Christians. People who want to know God, people who love God, but they don't really know him very well and they don't know his word. I met this girl in high school that I dated very briefly. I was going to the Baptist church, part of a youth choir, on fire for God. We were in a school play together. She was a Mormon. I made a deal. I'll go to church with you if you go to church with me. But her mother, this Mormon girl, her mother was a Baptist who had become a Mormon. How does that happen? Because this Baptist lady didn't know her Bible. She didn't have any discernment. She didn't know a lie when it was staring her in the face. The same thing happens with Jehovah's Witness and all these other pseudo-Christian groups who deny very important key doctrines of the faith and teach false doctrine. People who are not firmly rooted and grounded in their faith, perhaps mentally and emotionally unstable, and vulnerable to influence and manipulation. Now, if the right 
pastor or church or group of Christians gets a hold of them and leads them in the right way, then they can overcome these instabilities. But so often that's not what happens. The wrong people get a hold of them and they indoctrinate them in false teaching and they become part of the group that we could collectively called not the deplorables, but the deceived. And they are a multitude. You know, false teachers, false prophets, deceivers have an uncanny ability to spot these people in a congregation and draw them to themselves. I've seen it so many times in my many years in the ministry. It's like a moth drawn to a flame. And Peter says they have a heart trained in covetous practices. They become specialists. The NIV says experts in greed. Boy, you see it, don't you? All the little scams to get your money. Literally, it's translated having a heart exercised in greed. Exercised in the King James Version, it translates, we're going to try this, gegagymnasmanon. If it sounds vaguely familiar, it's where we get our English word gymnasium. Gegagymnasmanon. Nasmanon. Nasmanion. Some of these Greek words are tricky. That's where we get our word gymnasium. They're exercised. They've been working out to get good at it, to get strong at it. They work out in covetousness, practicing, sharpening, greedy skills. If they weren't really good at what they do, it wouldn't work. And then he says, and are accursed children. How many here today would consider yourself a child of God? See, God's children have been freed from the curse, have we not? Jesus died to set us free from the curse. The curse of sin is death. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now the law is good, but the curse of the law is that you and I can't keep it. And the law requires absolute 100% obedience, and if you can't do that, then you will die. God said, you know, this isn't working out real well on the human side. They can't do it. And really, God gave the law just to show men that we are, in fact, sinners, that we are imperfect, that we need Him, we need His salvation. But without Christ, the law is a curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So in Christ, he became cursed in our place. He took the curse. He conquered sin and death. So when Peter says that these men, these false teachers, are accursed children, well, they can't be God's children because we're not cursed. We're set free from the curse. Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So basically, these men have opted out of God's grace and therefore they become accountable under the law. So whose children are accursed in the Bible? John 8, 44, Jesus says to the Pharisees, we've talked about this before too, it's very hard for our brains to put this all together. How does it compute that someone who stands up 
and claims to be a representative of God and they're well-spoken and they're persuasive and they're charismatic and all these other things and they use the name of Jesus over and over again and your brain says they must be right they must be real right that's what your brain says and that's how people get deceived but the people who received the strongest rebuke from Jesus were not the everyday sinner on the street. In fact, Christ was criticized because he hung out with tax collectors, sinners. You know? Why does, they would ask Jesus' disciples, why does your master hang out with riffraff like this? Because they were above all that. They were the Pharisees. They were the Sadducees. They didn't associate with those kind of people. But Jesus, what did he do with the woman caught in adultery? He put those Pharisees in their place. said, okay, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. They all threw their rocks down and walked away. They had to admit at that moment they knew that they too were sinners. And then he turns to the woman caught in adultery and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I forgive you. Just don't do it again. His strongest condemnation was for the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders in the land of Israel. The ones that you and I would have looked at and said exactly what I just said a moment ago. But they're the spiritual ones. They're the holy ones. They're the ones who are supposed to set the example. We're supposed to be like them. And yet Jesus condemned them. They were whitened sepulchers full of dead men's bones. They were the blind leading the blind. And he takes it a step further here. And he says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Accursed children. But you see, if we dare to call it the way Jesus called it, the way the disciples called it, then in 2018, we're called the sons of the devil. Get it? Do we get that? So you better be ready. If you really want to take a stand for Christ, you better be ready to be called a son of the devil because that's what they're already doing. You've got to be willing to go with that. You've got to be willing to take that. Because that's what it's going to take to follow Jesus in these last days. If you want to be everybody's friend, if you want to be popular, if you want to be accepted, then you're in the wrong place. i got to tell you. Now, you're popular with me. I like you. Because you're smart enough, you're good enough, and doggone it, I like you. But don't expect it out there in the world. And don't expect it in many parts of the church. Because if you dare to talk like this, and all we're doing is we're reading the Bible, folks. If you dare to read what the Bible really says, quote what the Bible really says, and stand for the truth of God's word, there are going to be so-called Christians that are going to hate your guts. Do you get it? I hope you get it. And they're going to tell you you're not really a Christian because Christians don't talk like that. The only problem is Jesus talks like that. 
And it's not out of hate, it's out of love. Dr. James Dobson coined one of the most significant phrases ever known to man. He says, love must be tough. Tough love, he called it tough love. There are times when love must be tough. This is one of those times. You're of your father the devil. You know what? You could change that, Mr. Pharisee. You could repent. You could get right with God. Right now you're not. So what would be the loving thing to do? Would Jesus to say, Oh, Mr. Pharisee, you're so wonderful. God bless you. I bow before you. Would that be real love? That's fake phony baloney. Jesus loved them, and so he told them, you are of your father the devil, and if you don't change your ways, you're going to be spending a long time with your dad. That's real love. Verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. Now again, this is one of those scriptures where you get a lot of theological debate. To me, it seems to indicate they had known the right way, but had departed from it. Some will argue, no, they never really did. They weren't ever really saved. So you can make your own determination, but it says they for, have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following in the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. Balaam, you probably remember, he was a Midianite, known to be a prophet. King Balak, Midianite king, along with the Moabites, tried to bribe him to prophesy against the Israelites because they believed that his words had power and authority, and if he made a negative prophecy, it would prevent the Israelites from taking the promised land, which they had to travel through the land of Moab and Midian to get there. He would have taken the bait. He was a prophet for hire, but God stopped him. But we're told he loved the wages of unrighteousness like most false prophets. He was in it for the money. But verse 16, he was rebuked for his iniquity by God and then by a dumb donkey spreading with, speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. You remember that story, don't you? I'm going to read from Numbers. It's a long passage, but I want to read this. Numbers 22, beginning in verse 22. Then God's anger was aroused because he, Balaam, went. Now God had told him to go, but he told him he was only supposed to say what God himself told him to say not what the Midianites and the Moabites wanted him to say. But God knew, in his, knew his heart and he knew he had bad intentions. So God's anger was aroused against him. The angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. He didn't see the angel at first. He was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. Why was the angel standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand? He was going to kill Balaam. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. Smart donkey. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. The donkey said, you don't want to go that way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. He's after Balaam. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. 
And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? <laughs> and Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've abused me. Now the first thing you have to wonder about Balaam is, what kind of a guy talks to a donkey? Even when the donkey talks to you. I wish there was a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? Did I ever crush your foot before? Did I ever lay down underneath you before? I've been a good donkey. And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? See, this is actually the first recorded case of an intervention with animal abuse. That was a bit of a joke. Behold, I've come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. So I guess there's times when the animal rights folks get it right, I guess. The angel says, I would have killed you and spared the donkey, buddy. Now, this did stop Balaam from falsely prophesying against the Israelites, but since God would not allow Balaam to falsely prophesy against the Israelites, he came up with another scheme, again revealing his true heart. Because the king kept upping the ante. The first time Balaam says, No way, Jose, I'm not going to take on the Israelites, man. They're the apple of God's eye. I'm not prophesying against them. Then the king sends another guy back, with, and he doubles the money and promises them all other kinds of great things. And so he's having second thoughts. And God says, no, you better not do that. And just to make sure, he had the whole incident with the angel and the donkey. But Balaam comes up with a way around it because that reveals his true heart. He, he tells the Midianites, the Moabites, to trick the Israelite men into an illicit relationship with these pagan-worshipping Moabite women and thereby introducing immorality into the camp. In fact, remember Phineas, Phinehas? There was an Israelite man in his tent making, making it with a Moabite woman, and Phinehas goes in there and spears them both. So Peter likens these false teachers unto Balaam. Same mentality, same attitude, same spirit. Following the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness so much that he, even after all that God did to stop him, he still came up with a way around it and ultimately died in battle fighting with King Balak against the Israelites. He died a horrible death, Balaam. Peter goes on here, verse 17. These are wells without water, these false teachers. A well without water is what? A dry hole. Useless. Not only dry and useless, that's what a well is for, to get water. 
which is one of the, the essential ingredients for life. If a well has no water, it's useless and it's also dangerous if you happen to fall in it. Clouds carried by a tempest, just a bunch of fluff, noise, and hoopla with no real benefit. Again, we turn to Jude. Again, verse 12, these are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What happens to a falling star or a shooting star when it's done? It goes black, right? That's the end of it. Clouds without water. You know, like New Mexico, the Middle East is very similar. And it's prone to drought. And clouds without water have no benefit when you need moisture. We look up in the sky. We do have some beautiful clouds here. But what is the constant prayer? Lord, please put some moisture in those clouds, right? It's great to look at. We have beautiful skies. But we sure need moisture. They are clouds without water. John 7, 38 and 39. The latter rain in the scriptures speaks of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the Holy Spirit. John 7, 38 and 39. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There are clouds without water, without the Holy Spirit. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Again, Peter strongly emphasizes the dark future awaiting false teachers. The blackness of darkness, it seems like a double negative, doesn't it? But it means the darkest of the dark and the blackest of the black. What did we read back in verses 9 and 10 a few weeks back? The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. This is the blackness of darkness especially this group. Tremendous warning in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and imposters will... Now, this is so important because, again, people will make the argument, well, why do you think we're in the last days? What's the, what's the big deal? What's the difference? We've always had sin in the world. We've always had deceivers in the world. You know, what's, what's the big deal? Why do you think we're so close to the end? Look what Paul says here to Timothy. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus said that the tribulation, the last seven years of the age of man before Christ takes over and establishes his millennial kingdom, Jesus said it will be worse than any other time in human history. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. So you might say, well, man, I think things are getting worse and worse. Somebody will say, no, it's always been like this. No, it hasn't. Not according to the Bible. And in spite of some of the things we read in the Scriptures that are really horrible, God says it's going to get worse and worse 
and it has been, it is, and it will be. Deceived and, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned, Timothy. And this applies to every believer. And been assured of. Knowing from whom you learned them. Now again, there's no perfect human being. There are no perfect pastors. No perfect Bible teachers. But it is a good idea to know from whom you are learning. So many people get their learning from the TV, the radio. Everywhere I go, I hear about how much people love Rick Warren, love Joel Osteen, love Kenneth Copeland, this guy and that guy. You don't know them. But you can know their fruits. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. And if they're teaching false doctrine, what else do you need to know? Duh. But they're so popular. They're so well-spoken. They're so charismatic. Everybody likes them. Everybody loves them. Everybody buys their books. What's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you. If you're following God, if you're standing firm in the truth of His Word, the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. You've got to choose. Are you going to follow God or follow men? Knowing from whom you've learned them and that from childhood... Paul says, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. So, without being too condemnatory or too legalistic or too judgmental, parents who don't get their kids to church every week need a spanking <laughs> from God. I, and I, you know, I'm far from perfect, but I am who I am today because I was taken to Sunday school. I had the truth implanted in my heart and mind before the devil had a chance to fill it with lies. Every child deserves that. And yet most kids today aren't in church. Most kids today don't even know who Jesus is. Can you believe that? They don't know about Noah and Moses and David, all the things that we grew up with in Sunday school. They don't even know. When you talk about incurring a stricter judgment, what about a generation or multiple generations of people in the United States of America who have full and free access to the gospel of Christ and fail to pass it on to their children? That, you guys are always applauding, that deserved applause. Not for me, but for the truth. But I know it was very sobering. I think it was like a slap in the face. I get that. And you know what? It should be. There are times when we need a slap in the face. And you notice how the devil in the last 50 years has very subtly, very craftily made sure that instead of having our kids sporting events during the week, or on Saturdays, they're all on Sundays now. Everything's on Sundays. Have you noticed that? When I was a kid, we didn't have kids' baseball games or football games on Sundays. Stores weren't even open on Sundays. Everything shut down on Sunday because Sunday was recognized in the United States of America as the Christian Sabbath, the day when you worshiped God. It's still the day when you worship God. It's just a different God. 
It's the day when you go to the mountains. It's the day when you go four-wheeling on your ATV. You go hunting. You go fishing. You go to all your sporting events. You do anything and everything except go to church and worship God. That's what Sunday is now. So they're worshiping the God of this world. Now, am I saying people don't deserve a little R&R from time to time? No, I'm not saying that. But by the way, you're gonna, if you stay with God, you're going to have an eternity of R&R. Yeah. Get it? And majority of people in the world have no concept of R&R. Many of them work seven days a week. They work from sunup to sundown. Their whole method, their whole MO is survival. But in the Western world, what is it in Europe? They take like, what, how many weeks of vacation do they take? It's like four weeks, six weeks. That's crazy. Europeans. They almost spend more time not working than they do working. All right, so let's wrap this up. From childhood, you've known the Holy Scriptures, and that's a good thing. Timothy grew up in the Word. He didn't have to wait till he was an adult, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture. I don't like that part. Too bad. God put it in there. You better learn to like it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or God breathed. I like that translation. Just as God breathed life into Adam, he breathed his word into the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers and is profitable, beneficial for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why aren't more Christians doing more good things? Because they're not thoroughly equipped. Because they're not in the word. I'm going to give you five points as we close. One, throughout human history, the majority of people always have been and always will be deceived. Do you get that? How foolish when we follow after, listen to, fall in with, throw in with people who are deceived. That is just plain stupid. Christians do it all the time. The majority of people in this world always have been and always will be deceived. Do we get that or not? Am I t is that not true? Am I speaking the truth? Yes. Jesus said broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road. Narrow is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. It's narrow because there's not very many people going that way. Two, if you follow the crowd, you too will be deceived. Okay? Just settle that right now. Three, the deceivers are so good at deceiving because they themselves are deceived. Hello? Four, God is reserving the most severe punishment for those who deceive. He takes it very seriously. Five, Jesus, Peter, Paul, and the rest have shown us the only way to avoid being deceived. Just like there's only one way to heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. There's one way to God. Right? That's not fair. Well, how do you like this? No way. What if there was no way? Would that be fair? One way seems really fair all of a sudden, doesn't it? One way versus no way. I'll take the one way. Same way here, only one way. Your warm, fuzzy feelings are not going to protect you from deception. Having the wrong kind of fun in church is not going to protect you from deception. Avoiding controversial or difficult passages of Scripture, uncomfortable passages, is not going to protect you from deception. There's only one way to avoid being deceived. We already read it here in 2 Timothy. One, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture. You can't leave any of it out. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. And then secondly, as Paul told Timothy, the only way to avoid being deceived, you must continue in the things you have learned and been assured of. Knowing from whom you have learned them. You must continue. Oh man, I got saved 20 years ago. I'm good to go. Really? Are you continuing? Are you still on the right path? Are you still following God? Are you still standing firm on the truth of His Word? Or have you allowed yourself to become deceived? Have you fallen in with the deceivers? Then you better repent and get right with God and get back on the right path. It's the only way to avoid being deceived. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have given us everything we need to avoid being deceived. You've given us the truth of your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to give us discernment. Lord, we only get into trouble when we don't listen, when we don't pay attention. We don't follow you and listen to your word. We start listening to men. We start buying into every new exotic teaching and doctrine that comes down the path that those guys claim you've never heard before. Boy, this is the real deal. But it doesn't line up with your word. Father, I pray for anyone here today who may have come to the sudden realization this morning that they've been deceived. Help them. Deliver them. Break the power of deception over them and put them back on the right path, the path to eternal life. Lord, if there's anybody here today that's been flirting with deception, maybe they've gotten bored with the old path, they've gotten bored with the same old, same old, they want something new and exciting, Lord, deliver them right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Help them to repent, to confess, and to return to the true path. Lord, help us to do what we need to do until we see you face to face to avoid being deceived. Thank you for the truth of your word. We praise you, we honor you, we glorify you. We say, let God be true and every man a liar. We bless you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Save now. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.